Hey, good morning. All right, our scripture today is in Mark 1, 1 and Mark 1, 14 through 20. You can find it on the screen behind me in your Bible or in your bulletin. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again to all of you. So this morning we begin a new series in the Gospel of Mark. It will take us through the end of July, and I'm so excited that we get to talk about Mark's Gospel. I realize that in a crowd like this, many of you are familiar with uh, the Gospels about Jesus. You've been through it before. Uh, and others of you, this might be the first time for you to take a really good hard look at one of the Gospels. But regardless of where you're at spiritually, regardless of your experience, one of the things you will find is that if maybe you read the Gospel of Mark years ago, but you are a different person now. And one of the ways to look at this time as we go back into uh, these amazing stories is it's a, it's a chance for us to see Jesus in a fresh way as Mark talks about him in God's word. And you're in a different spot, and so who knows what God might do in your life through this series, through the Gospel of Mark. I know he's already beginning to change my life as I take a fresh look at some of these passages and some of these stories. So today, our title is, our theme is, Enter the King. Enter the King. What do I mean by that? Well, there's, there are situations in life where somebody with great authority or great power or great wealth or great skill enters into something and it's a game changer when they show up. So great example of that is that uh, poor little old Twitter was just moving along the last few years doing great and then a few weeks ago a man by the name of Elon Musk happens to be the wealthiest man in the world comes along and says, I would like to buy Twitter for $44 billion. And that sent shockwaves through uh, the board of Twitter and through social media. And if you pay attention to stuff like that, you realize that there's a lot of people that are just really jazzed about Elon Musk uh, taking over Twitter. They're excited about it. And there's others that just cannot stand the prospect of Elon Musk owning Twitter. Not to say today what side you might be on, but I think everybody agrees if you follow the news, it is a game changer that Elon Musk has entered in to Twitter. To Twitter. Give you another example. You might not be into social media, you might not be into Twitter, may, maybe never have heard of Elon Musk or Tesla cars or SpaceX or anything like that, uh, but maybe you are an NBA fan. Right now, National Basketball Association, uh, professional basketball, the, the, uh, the playoffs are happening right now, so you got all these different things. 
This is about the time of the year that even I start to pay attention to basketball because the playoffs are going on. One of the most exciting players in basketball is a guy by the name of Stephen Curry, Steph Curry. He plays for the Golden State Warriors. They are often contenders, but of late, Steph Curry has been injured, and so the Golden State Warriors have sort of hobbled into the playoffs. Well, this past week, Steph Curry was released from the injured list and got into play and started doing his usual stuff, just dribbling the ball and making these amazing two-point plays, his shots from the outside making those three-point plays, his leadership on the team. You would have to say that enter Stephen Curry, that is a game changer for basketball and a game changer for the Golden State Warriors. And we could think of many, many other examples like that. But this morning, we're going to look at the, perhaps the greatest game change of all time. Enter the King, Jesus Christ, coming onto the scene. And we're going to talk about what a game changer that is, that Jesus Christ has entered into history and it's not something that just happened historically 2,000 years or more ago, but it's something that has continuing effects for not only the first readers of Mark's Gospels and the people that met Jesus, but people throughout the centuries. It, have, it has continuing effects on the world and continuing effects on your life and my life. And so today, we're gonna look at three things about enter the king, about the king coming in. First of all, Number one, we're going to talk about the person of the king. We're going to see that in verse one of Mark's gospel. Second, we're going to talk about the message of the king. And then third, we're going to talk about the followers of the king. So my hope is that as we go through this message, that all of you will be able to see yourself in the picture of the story about Jesus Christ entering the scene. Would you pray with me as we begin this book of Mark? Lord, we're so thankful that these things have been recorded in your word. Many of us are coming from a different place in our faith this morning, and only you, Lord, know the unique needs of each heart in this room, but we pray that the coming of Christ would be not only a game changer for human history, but a game changer for every individual here in this church today and those watching online. And we pray, trusting you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, the person of the king. Take a look again at Mark chapter one and verse one. In fact, don't skip over this. You're reading the Gospel of Mark. I hope that you will read the Gospel of Mark this summer with me and with your elders as we study it together. But don't skip over the first verse of Mark chapter one. Let me read it to you. It says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now you see that word, the beginning, and if you're familiar with the scripture, you see that that word has biblical overtones. For example, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John chapter one, verse one, says in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And so some of us might see that word beginning and think, what is going on here? This is the beginning of something new. This is the beginning of a game changer. This is a, not only a, the beginning of creation, but this is, this is the beginning of the new creation, the beginning of a new, the dawn of a new era of redemption. So this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I wanna underscore two words in this verse that'll help us understand the person of the king. 
The first is the word gospel. Now, the word gospel is a word that we use a lot around Lake Baldwin Church. Uh, I loved hearing Brian Lumshu Chan just last Sunday talk about good news. That was his title, and he talked about Romans chapter one. He said, the God, he quoted Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So you remember that sermon from Brian, he talked about the gospel, and here we see that word again, and I wanna underscore the meaning of that word. So the first thing you need to know about the word gospel is it simply means good news. It was a word that was used in the ancient world, not just in the four gospels that we read, but it was actually out there in the culture. So I'll give you an example. By the way, it was often used to mean good news or glad tidings of like the birth of a king, or victory in battle. So there was actually an, an inscription that was found from 9 BC, so this is nine years before the birth of Christ, and here's what the inscription said. It was on a Roman calendar, and it's referring to the birthday of Caesar Augustus. And here's what the inscription said. The birthday of the God was for the world the beginning of joyful tidings, the beginning of good news, the beginning of the gospel. And so it was a word that was out there, but not only that, the word gospel, if you go back to the book of Isaiah, if you go back to a thousand years before the birth of Christ, you would see that the Old Testament prophets predicted that there would be a day, they prophesied what they referred to as glad tidings or good news but it was not just about the birth of a secular king, but it was about the birth and the coming of salvation for all of humanity. This was the hope, this was the aspiration of the prophets and the people of God throughout the Old Testament, and now the time is here. It is glad tidings, it is good news, it is the gospel. So at Lake Baldwin Church, if you hear us use the word gospel, and I was in a group recently where somebody had been around for a long time, and they go, what is meant by gospel? What do we mean when we say that? Gospel means good news. And so, but if you apply it to salvation, as the Bible does, not in just the Caesar Augustus sense, but in the Isaiah sense of salvation, here's, what we, here's our definition of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the definition of the gospel. And when we say that God saves sinners, it's God's rescue plan. It's his restoration plan. It's his salvation plan. And he not only saves sinners from the penalty of sin, which is spiritual death and perishing, but he also saves them from the power of sin. He transforms their hearts. So salvation is not just uh, deliverance from the penalty of sin, but it's also God's ongoing work in your life and my life to save us and to transform us and make us more and more like Jesus. So let me say it one more time. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. So that's the first word in Mark 1.1 that I wanted to highlight and underscore for you so that when you hear the word gospel, your mind just explodes with the meaning and the significance of it. But the second word is the title that is given to Jesus. Now, 
uh, as many of you know, Molly and I have been leading a, a dinner group called Christianity Explored. We've done that over the years. We've invited others to lead Christianity Explored groups. It is, a, uh, it is a great study of the Gospel of Mark, but it's designed for people that are new to the faith or who are exploring the faith. So we're having this Christianity Explored group. We just did week five last Thursday night. We had dinner. We had a great time. But the first lesson of Christianity Explored, what I love about it and what I'll never forget is they deal with Mark chapter one, verse one. And they explain the meaning of the word Christ. And a lot of people, until they hear something different, they believe when they say Jesus Christ, they go, oh, that's his last name. Like Mike Tilly, Tilly is my last name. But that's not it at all. We, somebody, somebody thought, oh yeah, that's his last name. And then realized, no, the word Christ is his title. It's his title. And you know what the word Christ means? It means Messiah. It means God's only anointed king. So what Mark is saying in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, is enter the king, enter the promised Messiah. So that's what we're talking about. Now we've said that this is a game changer. What does it mean that it's a game changer? So we're gonna go on to the second point in the sermon. First point is the person of the king. The second point is the message of the king. And this is where you and I can begin to appreciate the significance and so we go to Mark chapter one, verses 14 and 15. Now let's look at this together. Look at it in your bulletin, check it out. It says, now after John was arrested, now it's referring to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ. He was the forerunner of the king. And in the book of Isaiah, it said that there will be one who would come before him. And so John the Baptist played that role but John the Baptist encountered a buzzsaw of hostility, and that's why it says here that John was arrested. So think about that for a second. As Jesus comes out and Jesus begins to proclaim the gospel of God, as the king, the king himself enters the stage, you need to know, we need to know that that king has rivals that will not welcome his kingship. Some of those rivals might be the Roman government. There could be no other king but Caesar, and now there's this new king coming along, and there are other rivals to the king. You'll see that Jesus had opposition throughout the Gospel of Mark, and you will find that even in our day, and perhaps even in your heart, Jesus has his rivals. And so what we wanna learn from this passage is that Jesus keeps on coming, and that's what he does here. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, where's Galilee? In a couple of weeks, I'm gonna, we're gonna throw a map up on the screen. But for today, I wanna, I wanna give you a little geography orientation here. Galilee is a lake, a very large lake that is in northern Israel. So if you look, if you just picture a map and you got Galilee up in the north, and near Galilee is Nazareth where Jesus was born and raised. But then you go halfway down through the country, and you come to Jerusalem and Bethlehem and places like that. It's important to realize that when Jesus began his ministry, when he proclaimed his message, he wasn't doing it in the halls of power of Jerusalem, but he was up in the cosmopolitan areas of Galilee where you had a mix of 
Jews and Gentiles and commerce and all kinds of things that were going on around this lake. This lake was teeming with life. It was teeming with fish. So there were fishermen all around and there were small towns all around. And so the first seven to eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark, the activities of Jesus happen in Galilee and Mark wants us to know that as he's telling us his story. Let's get on to the message. Notice his message there. It says that he was proclaiming the gospel of God. He is announcing the joyful tidings of salvation. If you ask the question, why did Jesus come? It's to proclaim the gospel of God. You'll see that throughout the book of Mark. And he does healings, and he does teaching, does all kinds of things. But the message that he wants to grip people's hearts is the gospel of God. So he came, he's proclaiming the gospel of God. Now I want you to see two things that he says here in verse 15 and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So he's setting the stage here and this is why we see the, the, the entry of Christ as king is so significant for human history because the first thing he said here is he says the time is fulfilled. What does he mean when he says the time is fulfilled? Well, there's been, there's been preparation for centuries for the, for the entry of the king and for the coming of the king. The word time here is a Greek word, kairos. Now, if this designation of time had simply been a calendar designation where this happened and this happened and this happened, the word that would have been used would have been Chronos, which refers to chronological time. When it says kairos, kairos time is an epic and a defining moment in history. So when Jesus says the time is fulfilled, he's saying the kairos is fulfilled. The defining moment is here. And he says it's fulfilled. What it's saying there is that uh, the time is fulfilled is in what's called the perfect tense. In other words, it's a decisive moment with continuing effects throughout history. So Jesus is inaugurating a period of time, starting with his first coming and taking us all the way up to the second coming, where history would be pockmarked with divine moments, divine opportunities. That's what kairos means. It means a, div a divine opportunity. And so you might be around people and they might use a term like, well, this was a kairos moment. What they mean, it was a divine opportunity. One of the things that I've often said is there's no other time I'd rather be alive than right now. The reason for that is because despite everything that's going wrong in the world and everything that's happened in the world, God is still in control of time. We, not be, we need not be afraid of the outcome of all the horrible things that are happening in the world because because God is going to have his kairos moments. He's in charge of time. Not only time for the world, but time that's happening in your life, the things that you're hoping for, the things that you're waiting for, the things that you're praying for. God is in charge of time, and we learn that here, and Jesus starts it. The king has come, the time, the kairos is now fulfilled. What an epic moment this is. And what's being fulfilled? He says the kingdom of God is near or the kingdom of God is at hand. Enter the king and the king says, the kingdom of God is at hand. 
What is he talking about here when he talks about the kingdom of God? I'd love for all of us here to walk out of here ringing in our minds what Jesus means by the kingdom of God. Now, this is not talking about a geographic kingdom such as the UK, the United Kingdom, or the Roman Empire. It's not talking about a geographic kingdom. It's not talking about a political kingdom. It's not like, like Napoleon had or other leaders throughout history. But the kingdom of God is talking about the rule or the reign of God. The reign of God is being begun or inaugurated and it's going to spread from here. It's pretty exciting to think about what the kingdom of God is. Now you use the word kingdom of God when you pray the Lord's Prayer. Remember, there's a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, and we're to pray these words, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now what are some of the characteristics of this kingdom? Let me give you a few. I'm gonna give you three real quick right now, three characteristics of the kingdom of God, because you go, Mike, it's not a political thing, it's not a geographic thing, it's not a Napoleon thing. How do we experience it? What does it look like? Let me give you three things. First of all, the kingdom of God often starts small. You're gonna see in this passage that Jesus started with a couple of, couple of fishermen, grew it to 12 guys, and the kingdom of God starts small. It says elsewhere in the Gospels, there's a parable that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, but then it grows into a big tree. The kingdom of God starts small. I love small things, don't you? I love small churches that can grow into larger churches. I love uh, children that can grow into mature adults. I love uh, missionary endeavors that can grow and influence the world because the kingdom of God starts small and then it grows. I'll give you an example right in our church. Uh, as Dwayne mentioned, next weekend, Friday night, Saturday morning, our splash team is ho hosting something that we call Anchor. The purpose of that is for fifth graders to be brought into God's story and to be anchored in their faith, to learn about the gospel, to learn about Jesus, to learn about how to participate in the life of the church. So there's gonna be these fifth grade kids that are there next weekend that you can pray for but what's gonna happen is that the seeds of the kingdom of God are gonna be planted in the hearts of those kids, and those are seeds that will bear fruit, that will grow in their hearts over the course of their lifetime and will change the course of their eternal destiny. The king is here. Enter the king. It begins small in the kingdom of God. Second thing I want you to know about the kingdom of God is not just that it begins small, but that it's often hidden. The work of the kingdom is not always something you can see, it's often hidden. Give you an example of that. 10 years ago, a group of churches in central Florida and surrounding regions, and I say churches, actually pastors, I was one of them, formed something called the Florida Church Planting Network. And uh, the whole goal of that was to recognize that the state of Florida, especially central Florida, our whole area, 
is just people are moving here from all over. The population is growing, the demographics are growing, and it's becoming increasingly secularized. See, there's a reason that we planted Lake Baldwin Church because we saw a Kairos moment. Jim Cunningham and others saw a Kairos moment to plant a church here that would start, start small and grow into something. And so as we looked at what's happening in Florida and the changing demographics and the secularization, we came to the belief that there was an urgent need to have a church planting movement in the state of Florida. So we formed something called the Florida Church Planting Network. Now you say, Mike, what's the significance of that? Well, one is to let you know that your church, this church, is a charter member of that. Not only that, we have committed to giving 3% of our budget, which last year was something like $25,000, to pool our resources with 42 other churches to provide funding for new, new church plants. Because remember, they start small, but often they're also hidden. And so what, what John Calvin says is that the purpose of the church is to make visible the invisible kingdom of God. So what happens, we invest in this, we plant these churches. One of them was planted by Dave Abney who planted a church in Jacksonville that's now called Christ Church in town. It is a growing, flourishing church, but he was funded by the Florida Church Planting Network, and we were part of, our church was part of planting that church. Dave actually used to be on staff at this church. Another church, Christ United Fellowship in South Downtown Orlando, Michael Aitchison, was involved with us in planting that church. We provided funding, we provided training, and what happened with that church in South Downtown Orlando, the invisible kingdom became visible, and people can see the kingdom of God in that church. And now there's a new church that we're a part of funding, pastored, or the planter, is Heath Zuniga. He preached at our church last August, I found out this past week that he now has a core group of 20 to 25 people where the demo demographics are changing in Kissimmee, large numbers of Spanish speakers, and they've got this really cool bilingual outreach going on down in Kissimmee, and the Florida Church Planting Network, Lake Baldwin Church, needs, gets to be a part of that because the kingdom of God is being made visible by church planting. Over the last 10 years through the Florida Church Planting Network, 27 churches have been planted, each one of those representing something starting small and growing, and the kingdom of God is becoming visible. It is so exciting to be a part of the kingdom of God. The last thing I'll say about the kingdom of God, we said number one, it starts small, Number two, it's often hidden until it becomes visible. But the third thing is the kingdom of God is unstoppable. It is unstoppable. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. You may be discouraged, but God is not in heaven wringing his hands saying, I don't know what to do. No, it is unstoppable, the kingdom of God. Ever since those early days with those, those odd disciples that gathered around Jesus, and it has grown and it has encircled the globe, and it is unstoppable. There is a tragedy going on as we're here today in the country of Ukraine and the war that's happening in that country. A lot of us have talked about and heard about some really wonderful, compassionate efforts to take in refugees, to do all sorts of things to help out 
in a, in a very tragic situation. Our church partners with a network of international churches in Europe. One of those churches is a church in Moscow, in Moscow, Russia. This is, it's, a, it's a church like ours. It's a gospel-centered church, pastored by a guy that's a friend of mine, but there he is in Russia. You know what I found out they've been doing? Is they've got refugees on both sides of the border. You've got refugees in Russia, you've got refugees in Ukraine, what their church is doing is working with other evangelical, like-minded churches to provide assistance to refugees and also to share the gospel and also to make disciples of people in their churches because they believe in good news for the city, good news for those that are in need. And so right now, there is a church just like ours where there's a struggling pastor and there's, there's all this stuff going on where they're working together to provide relief. Why? Because the kingdom of God is unstoppable. There are all kinds of reasons why Christians both in Ukraine and in Russia would stop their activities because of persecution or fear of the government, because of fear that might not happen. But, the, but these people are bravely advancing the kingdom of God. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. You guys, there are kairos moments everywhere. It starts small. It's often invisible, but it is unstoppable, and you and I are a part of what Jesus is talking about in this passage. There's another thing about Jesus' message I want to highlight here, and you see that in verse 15. I want you to notice this, this, uh, there's actually a call here. In other words, in light of the fact that the, the time or the kairos is fulfilled, in light of that, and in light of the fact that the kingdom of God is near, Jesus said in verse 15, he says, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. I want to, if I may, just say a word to anyone who might be listening to me for whom the idea of becoming a Christian is kind of a new thing. So you're, you're looking at the Christian faith, you're maybe exploring it, you're open to it, and you're hearing about the gospel, but you've not yet been converted, you've not yet put your faith in Christ, you've not yet gone all in with Jesus Christ. I wanna give you some really encouraging words here because it says, Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. That is the announcement of Jesus to those people who have not yet put their faith in Christ. Now the word repent might be a scary word as if you gotta like, you know, be all, you know, weepy and all kinds of things, that might happen. But the word repent really means a U-turn. It means a change of mind. The other day I was, uh, my, I was following the GPS on my phone and I went on the wrong road, and it was kind of urgent, I need to be on time at a place, and, and, but it told me suddenly, since I was on the wrong road, I needed to make a U-turn and go in a different direction. So what Jesus is saying to anybody that's hearing his message, he says what, what this amounts to, to become a Christian involves a U-turn. It is turning from myself, turning from my sin, and turning to God. But it's not the repentance that makes you forgiven or that makes you clean. It's Christ who does that. So it's repent and believe in the gospel. 
trust in the gospel. So what is it that you need to believe to become a Christian? You know, I remember when I was on the verge of becoming a Christian, I used to think about that like, what does that really mean to put my faith in Christ and to believe in Christ? Well, think about this for a second. It's, it's like, in some ways you might say this is too easy, but it's also hard, so here it is. You need to believe that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. He's the Messiah, he's the King, and he's the Son of God. You can become a Christian by believing what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. You believe in that, so first it's repent, which is acknowledge your need for a savior, and then it's believe in who Christ is and believe in the work of Jesus on the cross to pay for your sins, because that's why he came. The whole reason that the king has entered into world history is so that you and I can be saved. So everybody in this room who's, who's, who's a Christian, it's because Jesus Christ came to you with his message and you repented and you believed. So it's as simple as that. It is, it is as if you have an Evite in your inbox with the gospel that says the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is near you, and the way you RSVP for that Evite is to repent and believe the gospel. You can't earn it through your righteousness. It, rather, we need Christ's righteousness. So that is good news. Now I want to talk about one more thing in this passage before we kind of wind down over the next couple of minutes and celebrate the Lord's Supper. And that is the followers of Christ. Did you notice what he says here about these followers? We've talked about, first of all, the person of the king, second, the message of the king, but the followers of the king. Look at Mark 1:16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting net into the sea, for they were fishermen. One of the things you need to notice here is he didn't go to Jerusalem to recruit religious people to join his team. But rather, he recruited normal people like fishermen, people with day jobs, people like you guys in this room, jobs in Maitland and Orlando and Winter Park and all over Central Florida. They were fishermen. And Jesus said to them in verse 17, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. So this is the call. The call, in light of the king entering the room, the call to all of us in this room, not just to those who are not yet believers, but to all of us, is to follow him. Now the word follow means uh, it's, it's, it's discipleship. It's that we follow Christ and we become disciples of Christ. So we use the word discipleship in this church. It basically means following Jesus, being a learner, growing in your faith. And Jesus is calling, the call is to follow me and the promise is I will make you become fishers of men. In other words, Jesus isn't gonna do it all himself but he involves human beings in his, this great story of the kingdom of God, and it's just like that church in Moscow, and it's just like those kids are gonna, that are gonna be at Anchor, and it's just like new church planting, and it's just all the stuff that's happening in our church, those seeds of the kingdom, we all get to be a part of that, because Jesus says, if you follow me, I will make you to become fishers of men. So what's the call in this passage? Well, it says they needed to leave their nets. That's what they did. They left their nets and followed him. So what is, what's the call to you and me this morning? Number one, you need to leave something. You need to leave something. I'd like to ask you, is there anything in your life that is keeping you from following Christ? 
A lot of times as American Christians, as Central Florida Christians, we want to have our cake and eat it too. But there are times when there's something that matters more to us than Jesus. And we need to leave something. We need to leave that behind. So what is it, what's the call? Number one, to leave something. Secondly, to follow someone. And that someone is Christ. So here's a question for you. Are you following Jesus right now? Is that the direction of your life or do you need to make a U-turn yourself? Are you following Christ? Are you a learner of him? Are you on a spiritual growth path? Is that the chief pursuit of your life? Leave something, follow someone, and then thirdly, become someone. Become something. Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. See, God will use all of us as part of his redemptive plan to seize Kairos moments and to advance his kingdom. If you follow him, he will make you fishers of men. I love what Brian Lumshu Chan said last week. Remember his application about the gospel? He said, uh, get, get engaged, get inviting, and get equipped. And he recommended, we have like Fisher training on our website. It's a 16-minute it's video called Telling God's Story. It was in the weekly update this week. I would encourage all of you to do that because there's this process that we're all in. If we're following Jesus, we're learning to join him in his mission and becoming fishers of men. Well, this is exciting. Enter the King. And I want to close with one little thought to leave in your mind because I, I, I wanted to think about like how do I um, how do I put in your minds a story that captures the significance of the kingdom of God being near and you having a part in it and what that can mean for you and for me? In my opinion, there are few people that, who tap in to the heart aspirations of both children and adults as C.S. Lewis in his series, Chronicles of Narnia. The first book is called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And what's going on there, it's such a picture of Enter the King, because what's happening is these four kids go through a wardrobe and they come out into this place called Narnia, and it's just always snowy and it's always icy and all kinds of stuff going on. And they meet a fawn by the name of Mr. Tumnus. And Mr. Tumnus explains the situation in Narnia, like the situation in much of Central Florida, the situation around the world. Mr. Tumnus the Fawn tells Lucy that the white witch has got, quote, all Narnia under her thumb, and it's she that makes it always winter. And the kids are learning about this larger story, this epic story that's going on. Later on, towards the end of The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, something else happens, and that's the appearance of Aslan, who is this regal lion, if you will, a kingly figure. And listen to the words about, the, about Aslan, coming on, Aslan coming on to the scene. This is the beaver talking. They had talking animals in Narnia. He said, they say that Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he has already landed, said the beaver. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. 
Peter felt suddenly, felt suddenly brave and adventurous, maybe like that past pastor in Moscow. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. Think of the joy in her heart of Aslan being on the move. And then Lucy. Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. You see, Aslan is on the move. And because it's Kairos time between the first and second coming of Christ, Aslan is still on the move. The kingdom is growing. Enter the king. Aslan is on the move. And I have a final question. Will you follow the king? Let's pray together. Lord, what good news we've looked at today. Many of us are not familiar with the idea of a king. But we praise you this morning for the reality of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Would you, by your grace, work in our hearts that we would respond the way Simon and Andrew did and James and John, that we would leave our nets and we would follow you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.